You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. It truly is a good morning, uh, especially as we've been reminded uh, again and again, and will continue to be reminded throughout throughout this this morning that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. He is risen. Yes, the late uh, theologian John Stott wrote, "Christianity is, in its very essence, a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart." And on that note today, we're not going to be reinventing the wheel. In fact, I think Pastor Blair just uh, preached my message already um, to the kids. But uh, that's okay, because we need to constantly be reminded of this, as, as I'll be talking about later. Um, so as we read through part of the narrative from the Gospel of Luke regarding the resurrection, we're, we're going to be learning about and celebrating what it accomplished, what it proves, and what it means for us. So please turn with me to Luke 24. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 12. Luke 24, 1 to 12. And just because this is the last chapter of Luke doesn't mean our sister Luke is over. We're going to go back to where we left off <laughs> next week. So Luke 24, 1 to 12. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and then rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. As we read through this passage, we we get a pretty clear picture of of the emotional state which Jesus' disciples were in after they after Jesus had been crucified, right? You could say they, they weren't doing too well. It seems like they were overcome with grief and drowning in sorrow. In the same vein, we also get the sense that they're confused and they're bewildered by what just took place. In fact, it seems like Luke wants us to get a vivid picture here, which shows us that none of the disciples expected to ever see Jesus again. In fact, some of the other Gospels actually inform us that the disciples had actually gone back to their old lives and their old jobs, right? Not knowing what else to do. Very quickly then, this means that if Jesus hadn't defeated the grave, then nothing would have changed. The world wouldn't have changed. 
right? We wouldn't be here today. Christianity simply wouldn't have existed as a movement because the disciples would have just gone back to their old lives wondering why they'd spent three years following this crazy guy who said he was a rabbi and the son of God. And not only that, but every single truth claim of Christianity, every foundation of our faith, everything we claim about the work of the cross hinges on the resurrection. It's the one thing on on which all of Christianity rises or falls. Our very faith and hope and our salvation in Christ is predicated upon it and affirmed through it. As Tabiti Anyabwile writes, Anyabwile writes, nothing that, that happened before the resurrection has any meaning if Christ did not rise from the grave. His virgin birth is meaningless. His perfect obedience is meaningless. His miracles and teaching are meaningless. Even his crucifixion means nothing if Christ remains dead. It all hangs on the events of this final chapter on the resurrection. And we have to understand, though, that, that at this point in the narrative of Luke's gospel, where we started in Luke 24 and verse 1, this, this brokenness this, and this hopelessness, which comes from not knowing the resurrected Christ, is the state in which Jesus' disciples are in. Right? On that end, yesterday, uh, Saturday, was a day that some denominations observe as Holy Saturday. Right? And this is a day in which we're meant to reflect on the darkness that overcame the world at Jesus' death and, and what the world or what our lives would even look like without the hope of that resurrection. Think of that. If we didn't have that hope of resurrection, what would the world be like? What would our lives be like? This, again, is the state which the disciples are in at the beginning of this passage. Jesus has given them all these promises. He said all these things. He's done all these things. He said, he, well, he's the, the coming king, the coming Messiah, and now he's dead. His body's lying in a tomb. The adventure's over. And so at this point, they're probably full of grief and doubt and thinking to themselves, what, what, was he not the promised Messiah king? Were we duped? Was it all for nothing? They had no clue yet that the cross would be everything and that the resurrection would prove it. But again, they didn't see it coming. First of all, we get a description of the female disciples of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others as well, who make their way to the tomb which Jesus' dead body was laid in. And again, they didn't go there to see if Jesus had risen yet, but rather they went there with spices, in order to prepare his body for decomposition in the grave. They didn't expect resurrection. They expected to find Jesus among the dead. Second of all, when the male disciples are told by the women that the grave is empty, what's their response? Ah, I knew it all along. No, quite the opposite. Their response is to accuse the women of being delirious and out of their minds, speaking gibberish and nonsense like someone who's deathly ill or intoxicated. In other words, they didn't expect resurrection. They thought the idea of it was outrageous and impossible. It seems like they just expected it and said to go on with the rest of their lives without Jesus, hanging on to their grief and their confusion and their doubt and even their shame for for, for abandoning and even denying him when he was unjustly arrested by the Sadducees two two evenings earlier. It It seems like they just expected to carry all this brokenness to their graves. 
And as, as I look around this world, as we look around this world, especially in this time, there's a lot of brokenness, right? A lot of hopelessness, a lot of confusion, a lot of guilt and shame, a lot of uncertainty and, and fear and anxiety and doubt. And I think if we take an honest and sober look within the caverns and hidden corners of our own hearts, I know many of us would find the same symptoms there. The truth is many of us as believers are sadly living out our lives in such a way that we look no different from anyone else in the world. Like we're living our lives as if Jesus was still in the grave and we're about ready to join him. All our days look like holy Saturdays. But we don't need to live like that. We don't need to live under the burdens of our guilt or brokenness or, or by chasing after the course of this world, right? We can be set free. Because the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is that Jesus overcame those things for us through his death and resurrection, that he comes to us, he comes into our brokenness, into the place of death and decay, and gives it new life. His resurrection is a great light breaking into the darkness. And, and this is the end game that we find in Revelation, right? Not only that we're saved from our sins so that we get to go to heaven when we die, but that Jesus comes to us in our sin in order to take it upon himself so that he can establish us with him in a new and eternal kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, which we'll see in full when he comes again. A kingdom filled with God's presence in which there'll be no more pain or suffering or tears. A kingdom that's lit up by the glory of the living Christ. Like the dry bones in Ezekiel, all that's dead in sin will be made alive again. How? Because he lives. Because he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for our sake as our perfect atoning sacrifice. And then God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lifted him up from the grave to sit at his right hand to have authority over the living and the dead, where he now sits as the King of kings and Lord of lords over a new and eternal kingdom, a kingdom which he lovingly and freely invites us into by his grace. And this is a truth so paramount to our faith and eternal hope that it causes the Apostle Peter to exclaim in 1 Peter 1.3, <clears throat> Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. But, but how, we need to ask this, how did Peter come to this place of rejoicing in the living hope when we see him and all the other disciples in a place of deep hopelessness in this passage. Well, it starts with the testimony of the women, right? When they find the grave empty, they're perplexed, they're bewildered, they're probably a little upset as well to see Jesus missing. But then a couple of angels show up and ask them one of the most important questions in the history of mankind. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus isn't found in a tomb. Right? He's not some martyr 
or even just some historical person of significance like David or Moses who said a bunch of cool things that we can follow. No, he's the son of God. Death has no hold on him because he's the son of God. He's the only one who was without sin and therefore the only one not deserving of death. And therefore death has no hold on him. As Peter also says in his first sermon uh, during Pentecost, Acts 2.24, says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. But in their grief and in their, in, and in their sorrow, it seems the disciples, both the women and the men, had forgotten. Jesus had told them this, that Jesus had, had specifically told them that according to God's plan of redemption, in order to save the world from sin and the power of death, he had to be betrayed and crucified. But that in doing so, he would also be raised up on the third day and glorified as the king of kings. Jesus told them that he would never leave them nor forsake them. But they'd forgotten these words. And maybe they'd started to even doubt them if they had remembered them. Later in the day, Jesus even visits some other disciples as they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And and these disciples are contemplating and, and mourning the events of the cross. And they don't even recognize Jesus. It says they're prevented from recognizing Jesus. That is, until Jesus himself reminds them of what needed to take place, according to the prophets and scriptures. And then they're like, oh, yeah. He needed to remind them that the whole Old Testament was promising and leading up to that moment, to the cross and to his resurrection. And it seems every single disciple in this story needed to be reminded by the resurrected Christ himself, or at least by his angels, before they realized and understood what was truly and marvelously happening. And so in seeing this empty tomb and upon hearing the angel's words, that's when the women finally remembered. That's when they finally remembered the promise. That's when they finally remembered the plan. And that's when everything changed for them. And so this is a reminder for us as well to always have in focus what Jesus accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, to always remember that we serve more than just some ideas presented by a man who lived 2,000 years ago who now lies dead in the grave, but we actually serve a living and victorious king who reigns with power and glory. Because when we forget it, That's when we start living out our lives as if Jesus was still lying in a tomb somewhere. That's when we live powerlessly and fearfully. That's when we start to go astray. That's when we become overcome and overwhelmed again and again in our sorrows and in our grief and in our anxiety and our guilt and our sin and our low self-esteem and the list goes on. As Tabitiania Buile again writes, we will be the only people rejoicing even in the face of death if we keep our minds fixed on his gospel. We see the change in the women here. And and as they proclaim this good news to the other disciples, and as they come to the end of their report of what they'd seen and heard, 
everyone's calling them crazy and speaking nonsense, but, but it's something, something clicks in Peter's broken heart. A glimpse of hope and wonder. The tomb is empty. The stones rolled away. He had to see it for himself. And he did. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't make the same mistake he did when Jesus was going to the cross, right? This time, no, he's not going to deny it. He rushes to the tomb. And of course, he finds it empty, except for the linens which Jesus had been wrapped in. And then it says he walks away from the tomb amazed at what had happened. Because it truly is amazing. It's astounding. And, and I love that image of him walking away from the tomb. <coughs> Excuse me. I love that image of him walking away from the tomb. It's, it's powerful. Right? It's powerful. Think of it. The resurrection reality means that we, like Peter here, also get to walk away from the tomb. Right? We get to walk away from the power that death had over us in our sin. Because of the resurrection, because Jesus paid the penalty of death and conquered that penalty of death, we also get to live. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right? So, so this resurrection reality means that those of us who follow Jesus in faith get to shout, claim the victorious words from 1 Corinthians 15, 54 that says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we stand on that hope. We stand on that hope of the empty tomb. It's our living hope. A hope that reminds us that once was dead is brought to life. That once that what was once broken is renewed. That what, what seemed hopeless becomes victorious. That what was once ruled by evil is frustrated by good. As pastor and author Paul David Tripp writes, the resurrection tells you that God will win. His truth will reign. His plan will be accomplished. Sin will be defeated. Righteousness will overcome evil. The resurrection proves to us that Jesus has won. That we have a living hope that will not disappoint. A hope that points us to the work of our cross for our salvation and rebirth. Because Jesus died and rose again. Because he put death to death. We have resurrection life. And I, I want to emphasize here, in the same way that we learn in the children's story, I want to emphasize that this new life isn't just waiting for us when we die and go to heaven. It's kind of the Western evangelical way of thinking. Oh, Jesus died for my sins, now I get to go to heaven. That's it. No, that's not what resurrection life is. It's meant to be experienced in part now. The kingdom is with us now. 
And even more, we're called to be conduits or temples of this kingdom and of God's presence in the world. Going back to that passage from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, we read this part, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what's next? Wait till we die and go to heaven? No. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? The reality of the resurrection should propel us to live in the power of the resurrection. To put it bluntly, we're meant to live our lives as if Jesus reigns because he does. Not as if he's still in the grave. We're meant to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know it's not in vain, and we know it's not in vain because Jesus is alive. If he was dead, then it would be in vain. But he's not. He is alive. Again, the living Christ comes to us in our guilt and in our brokenness and in our shame and our purposelessness and our sorrows and our, and our weakness and our pride. And he, com- he comes to us in our darkness and in our death. And he breathes supernatural newness of life and truth and purpose and power into our lives and into our souls. And this is experienced immediately after we place our faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. Right? All our guilt, all our sorrows, our old nature, it's gone. The new is here. Wait for heaven to live this resurrection life. We can take hold of it now. We can take hold of it now. On that note, as as we take a look at the life of the disciples, we see that there's this massive shift, right? A massive shift in the trajectory of their lives on that first Easter. While While Jesus was in the tomb, again, they were purposeless. They were unsure, divided even. But as soon as Jesus comes and appears to them in the flesh, which he does later on that day, as you can read in Luke 24, as soon as they see him, and, and touch him, and, and feed him supper even, everything changes. Everything changes. From that point on, they no longer lived as those who were dead in their sin or as those who followed a dead king. But they lived empowered lives, walking in the boldness and in the victory of the one who is alive and who reigns. Fast forward to Acts 4.33. It says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And of course, as as an even greater assurance of hope, and as Jesus promised, he's, he's poured out his spirit on them and all those who believe in his name by faith so that he can dwell within us and empower us to persevere, but most importantly, to go forth and proclaim the good news of his kingdom. Again, to be as living temples who bring the presence of God and his light into the world, his light in the darkness, to make disciples of all nations, to be his messengers of hope until he comes again in the power of his victory to finally crush evil and make all things new. 
The promise of, of salvation and the power of his spirit through the living Christ is also what Peter both exemplifies and proclaims for us in that first sermon on that day of Pentecost. Again, it says in Acts 2, 32 to 33 and 38, 39, he says, God has raised this Jesus and we are all witnesses of this. See, he's saying we saw it. This is what changed us. We were witnesses of this. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witness of the, witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This promise is for you. A promise that declares that anyone who repents and is baptized in the name of Jesus can live in the power and promise of resurrection life. It's a promise of new and abundant Holy Spirit-filled life that's rooted and established in the amazing and incredible reality that Jesus has conquered the grave and that he now sits at the right hand of God with all authority over heaven and earth, over life and death. This is a promise that declares we get to live because he lives. And so as we turn our hearts in faith to Jesus, our risen Lord, Let's give thanks and rejoice in this hope by faithfully taking hold of that salvation and that resurrection life with which Jesus won for us and freely gives to us. And let's allow that hope to compel us as well in the way we live and persevere through our lives today. Let's live because he lives. Amen? Awesome. At this time, I would, I would invite you now to come before the risen Christ together as, as we receive communion. You know, one of the, the incredible aspects of the resurrection story of Jesus is that after he's raised from the grave, he appears to Mary and the women with her and then, and then to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he even sits down with those disciples and he eats with them. And of course, he also appears to, to the other disciples, and then he dines with them as well. And later on, he, he appears to, to Peter as they're fishing, and he eats with them and uses that time as a time for Peter to repent before him. And, and, and Jesus eating with his disciples is such a glorious reminder of the fact that he not only lives, but that because he lives, we can commune with him as the body of Christ. We can enter into his presence and freely feast with him at his table. Of course, Jesus also instructs us to do this in remembrance of his death until he comes again. We're called to come to the table often as a memorial and proclamation of the good news of salvation, of the new covenant and eternal life, which Jesus won for us at the cross and proved to us and affirmed for us in his resurrection. And as we do, we also become unified with him and with each other 
as the body of Christ. And so especially because we're celebrating the resurrection this morning, we'll be receiving communion together as the body of Christ. John 6, 53 to 58, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. But the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So before we partake, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice at the cross. Thank you for taking the weight of our sin upon yourself once for all, so that we could be covered in your righteousness, filled by your spirit, and welcomed into a new covenant in the presence of our God. We thank you, Lord, that we have life, that we get to live because you live. And Lord, even though as your church we're, we're somewhat physically separated right now, I thank you that as we receive your body and blood this morning, we can yet rejoice in the knowledge that we're still unified by you and by your spirit within each one of us, the same spirit that raised you from the grave and draws us into your presence even now. And so we come to you today, Lord, with repentant and with, with thankful hearts for your undeserved grace. And as we rejoice on this Easter morning, Lord, we ask that you bless these elements before us, even as we proclaim and glory in your death until you come again, even, even as we receive your body, which was broken for us, and, and remember your blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Amen.